So we pick up this theme of life in Advent, and uh, if you have got a good memory so far, you will be remembering that um, we are looking at Advent this year through a what's called a womanist perspective, namely that um, uh, from four weeks of Advent you get this long list of men, <laughs> and, uh, and it's all very, very male. Uh, and we felt just for when the changes this particular year, wanted to take a woman's perspective, what does Advent look like through the eyes of, of women? So our text this morning, though, is pointing very, very clearly towards a man, John the Baptist. Um, and there was a, it's because it says, there was a man sent from God, his name was John, he came as a witness to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. And I want to begin with a quote from um, Richard Raw, um, who says this, uh, remember, light is not so much what you directly see as that by which you see everything else. That's why in John's Gospel, Jesus Christ makes the most boastful statement, I am the light of the world. So what we say is, is, is that everything that we see, we see in the light of Jesus Christ. And it's critical to our understanding of John's Gospel, particularly the words of, uh, uh, of John the Baptist, and further as we're going to look at today, the actions of Mary of Bethany and her anointing of Jesus as the Christ. Which is where I want to go with our womanist theme of this happening. Now the Gospel writers are very keen to place events in the Gospel in the village of Bethany. John, for some reason, keeps coming to the village of Bethany. And it's a place that gets lots of air time. Mm-hmm. You go home, flip through John's Gospel, see how many times this particular place turns up. Now, whether it was the place where John was from, impossible. Um, but one that, nonetheless, it is something that comes up, particularly as it was from Bethany that Jesus ascended into heaven. Now, uh, somebody probably would have told you once upon a time, that uh, John was the writer of the Gospel of John. John was the head of a team of writers uh, who wrote John's Gospel. They reckon it took over 30 years to write the Gospel. It was such careful Greek and such careful composition of pointing towards it. It's a very, very, very precisely written uh, document and it took a lot of time But the overarching theme throughout John's Gospel is this. That we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. It turns up in chapter 1, it turns up in chapter 14, it turns up at the end of the book. And so you have to ask yourself the question, why are we beginning in Bethany and not in Bethlehem? It's a good question to ask, isn't it? Bethlehem, don't get a mention. Nazareth, don't get a mention. We begin with John in Bethany. And it's full of the home of the friends and followers of Jesus, Mary, Martha and Lazarus, as well as Simon the leper, um, were all based in the village of Bethany. Now that name of the town, the name of the village, means house of affliction or house of figs. I don't know if the two are related, but I think it's going to be helpful. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just a little bit of the tone of this. It sits on the southeastern slope of the Mount of Olives, 
And at the present time, it is a Palestinian town. It's about two miles from Jerusalem, and appears to be the place where Jesus stayed when visiting Jerusalem. Probably because the cost of accommodation in Jerusalem was so high. And he was certainly a close friend of Lazarus, as it is almost unheard of a single man, much less a group of single men and a rabbi to enter the home of... So him going into the home of Lazarus, after the death of Lazarus, namely there were two single women living in the house, was absolutely scandalous, scandalous behaviour to go into the house of a woman on her own. You can go up and down around here in Normanton, knock on the door, and if, and if a man has got two unmarried daughters living there, and you're the local builder, you ain't coming in the house. It's as simple as that. It is very much the culture of that place. Bethlehem was the place where Jesus ascended into heaven. And so beginning, so placing the beginning of John's narrative at the place where the gospel finishes is paying attention to this text. Now, one of the things I think when you've got very Greek text to do, but paying attention to the bookends helps you to understand what is going on. And very often, the key to things are right in the middle. And so, we begin in Bethany, the house of affliction, and we finish at the ascension where the Logos, the Christ, returns to heaven from where he came. The word made flesh, the Christ, comes and returns. John, in placing the beginning and the end of the gospel, is up to something, and he's doing it by the scandalous actions of a woman. But before we move to Mary Bethany, I want to make a comment about the equally scandalous behaviour of John the Baptist. You may say, well, what did he do that was scandalous? Well, listen to this through the eye, through Jewish eyes. They asked him, well, why then are you baptising me from neither the Messiah nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptise with water. Among you stands one who you do not know. The one who is coming after me. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. This took place at Bethany across the Jordan. He makes this reference to being not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. Now, baptism was not a new practice in Judaism. It was a regular rite in the, myth, in the omission of converts from other religions. That's why we've picked up, we picked up baptism as the rite of omission within Christianity. And when such a conversion took place, the males of the family were circumcised and all or both sexes were baptised. And in the end, we dealt, we got rid of the circumcision thing and we just stayed with baptism. This was seen as a ceremonial removal of all the pollutions contracted in the Gentile world. The novelty in John's case and the sting in his practice was that he applied to Jews the ceremony that was held to be appropriate in the case of Gentiles. Coming newly into the faith. All Jews were prepared to accept the view that Gentiles were defiled and needed cleansing. But to put Jews <coughs> in the same class was horrifying. At a level you cannot imagine. Absolutely scandalous behaviour, but it gets worse. <coughs> he was not worthy to loose the thongs of the Great One's sandal. Loosing the sandal was the task of a slave. <coughs> a disciple could not be expected to perform it. To get the full impact of this, we must bear in mind that disciples did not do many, uh, many services for, for their teachers. Teachers in ancient Palestine were not paid. But impartial compensation 
disciples were in the habit of performing small services for their rabbis, rabbis instead. But they had to draw a line somewhere. A menial task like loosing the saddle from came under this heading. There's a rabbinic saying in the present form dating from about 1850, but probably much older. Every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher, except the loosing of the saddle thong. John selects the very task that the rabbinic saying stresses is too menial for any disciple, and declares himself unworthy to perform it. He is unworthy of the most menial task for the one who was to come after him. In other words, he couldn't go lower. He was going to the very, very lowest of place. And then, right in the middle of John's Gospel, in this little village of Bethany, in this place where Jesus was later to be ascended from, I want you now to travel with me, because I, I, I want you to make something of a journey. Are you, uh, have I got your attention? Or are you distracted? You're with me, aren't you? Okay, good. I want you to make a journey. So John begins in Bethany. Jesus goes up in Bethany, and right in the middle of the Gospel, there is this incident that takes place where Mary anoints Jesus at Bethany. Six days before the Passover, okay, notes the dates, timings, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was. So Lazarus is still alive, whom Jesus <coughs> embraced from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. Now, um, these days, probably for the last three years, probably, uh, four years actually, I wear sandals pretty much all the time. It's, uh, and at times when it's hot, they're a blessing. Okay? When it's not hot like it is, it, they really are. Okay? You do feel the cold. And my feet painfully remind me that my feet, my flesh, is very connected to this earth. I can't imagine for one second what it would be like to have 30,000 pounds worth of perfume poured over my feet as an act of scandalous generosity. The cost of that perfume was a year's wages. And that woman, Mary of Bethany, took it, broke it, and poured it all over Jesus' feet. And then to have someone kiss them and wipe them with their hair I think that I would struggle with that. I find it very hard for someone to do that to me. Mainly because in such a public setting, it appears as extremely erotic. Um, in fact, it is an erotic act. No matter what you do with what took place there, it comes over as a very erotic act. Um, I think it would make any of us, would it make you awkward? Feel awkward if someone did that to you before. It would make me feel extremely awkward. And yet, all the gospel writers record this particular incident. And if you want to take me saying it is this, and if you forget anything else I say in this sermon, grace is completely and utterly scandalous. John the Baptist starts off with scandalous grace. Mary Bethany does scandalous grace. Jesus is all about scandalous grace. 
Scandalous. I mean, not just ordinary, being nice grace. Scandalous grace. And it, I mean, let me take, take you somewhere. God becoming a baby for our Muslim friends around us is completely scandalous. They could not perceive, conceive, imagine for one second that God could become a baby. Ask anyone over there at the Sea Temple, can God take on flesh? No. The most that God can do is he can make a guru. He can create a guru. But God himself could not take on flesh. And that the guru was enlightened is not the Logos, the Christ himself. Jesus becoming the universal Christ <coughs> that is available to not just Jews, but to Gentile Palestinians, to Muslims, to Zoroastrian Magi from Iraq. It's all scandalous. Smelly shepherds turning up at his birth. Scandalous. Not inviting Herod. Scandalous. Angels proclaiming the message of good news to all. That's the grace of God in Christ. Is superior mercy, superior than any other thing that you can find out. I follow Jesus because of his scandalous mercy. His scandalous kindness, his scandalous grace, his scandalous love that goes to the places where we say, love can't go, we've got a line that we want to draw, and then God goes and breaks through the line. One of the hardest things I think for us, and I'm glad this isn't recorded on the internet, but I think one of the hardest things for us to grasp as Christians is, Jesus is bigger than the church. Christ is bigger than anything we can see or imagine. And his grace and his love and his scandalous kindness is beyond anything that we can see or imagine. The grace of God coming to us in sinful humans as a baby born of Mary is even more scandalous than if you could imagine right now that one of the sex workers from the Normandy Road came to church this morning in their working gear and poured perfume all over my feet, kissing them and wiping them there. I think you would all feel somewhat nervous and Pat will be writing up the safeguarding report which you did so. <laughs> I think that might hit the Garvey Telegraph and I imagine Calvin Robinson on GB News would have something to say about such evil in the Church of England. The Christ event is the most scandalous, gracious, merciful, inclusive and loving thing ever. From the utter humility of the Incarnation to the humility of God hiding under a piece of bread for us in the Eucharist week by week by week. And God invites us all to take part in it. I don't think most of us can cope with the fact that Christ is not Jesus' second name. In fact, he's the second person in the Trinity who has come and been far more human than we are comfortable with. We want the Jesus of the stained glass window next door with the blonde hair and blue eyes, not the homeless, sofa-surfing Palestinian refugee or the people who come here on the Wednesday morning. But that is what the Bible tells us Jesus is like. Mary of Bethany presents us with the Christ that John the Baptist was to proclaim, the humble God who holds everything in divine participation with himself, and for love squanders everything to show us that yes, even in crucifixion, love wins. Love transforms absolutely everything. And so these words, we are unworthy to tie his sandal 
Yet Jesus invites us to live in outrageous, scandalous intimacy in the way that Mary of Bethany does. Kind of behaviour of Mary is the intimacy that Christ invites us as believers to be in with him. But what about all my sin? What about all my badness? But surely when I come to God, God knows about that. Yeah, he does. And he still invites you. He still welcomes you. He still embraces you. He still loves you. And I just hope, and I think I'm going to preach myself here, that my longing and waiting for Jesus will be like Mary did. Because this woman gives us an example of what it means to long and to wait for the coming of Christ in our lives. And I would hope that maybe something in this sermon has made you slightly thirsty for that. That Jesus that we read. I want to finish with a few quotes from St. Teresa of Calcutta. Because I think I love many things. If you get to know me, I'm always on about this saint or that saint, and I drive people bonkers with it. But I do like this one. Because she was a woman who understood scandalous grace. Listen to this. If you judge people, you have no time to love them. <laughs> True, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Peace begins with a smile. It does. Well, don't be smiling at people. I don't think you're mad, or they say hi. We fear the future because we are wasting today. Not all of us can do, this is my favourite quote of us, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. Tell me smile someone, it's an action of love, a gift to that person, a beautiful thing. One I very much just to finish with. You don't think that love in order to be genuine has to be extraordinary. What we need is to love without getting tired. And that's hard. To love without getting tired. And I can tell you stories when you're in the mission. You will get tired. You will get very, very tired. <coughs> where actually it feels like sometimes our love has not run out. And what we do is this, brothers and sisters, very tactically, we project that onto God. God's love for us, for you, for everyone, for this world, does not run out. It continues and continues and continues. And it's an everlasting and inexhaustible place of love. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.